Hello and welcome to Only Fools and Brotherly Forces, the Only Fools and Horses rewatch podcast with me, Bobby, and as always, my brother, Jamie. Good evening, Jamie. Good evening, Bob. We're back and, well, I'd say better than ever, but I'd probably say overwhelmingly on par with all of the other ones. We we are as consistently average as always. (laughs) Yeah. We were just discussing seconds before we we turned the mics on that uh, I, I was happy to be back. It felt uh, it felt nice and at home to watch the episode a few moments ago, and looking forward to getting on the uh, on the mic. And Bobby was not. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, this is a point that I just articulated to Jamie, which I probably never said before out loud. Which is there's a large amount of this uh, entire sort of job, if we'll call it that, that isn't <laughs> necessarily that enjoyable. Like I find actually the building up to recording and the planning. And the getting ready and organised, quite like stressful. And even the first five, ten minutes of a record, I'm a bit like, I get a bit of stage fright, you know what I mean? And then mm. the second we start, I really enjoy the experience. We have a great laugh. At the end of it, I'm always really pleased listening back to the episodes. I'm always chuffed and proud of them, even, you know, ones that we think maybe weren't as good as others. But yeah, the whole the whole build up and thinking thinking about doing it is nowhere near as fun as actually doing it. I don't look forward to it. I just then happen to always enjoy it, to enjoy it, which is a very odd thing. So you enjoyed your your little holiday then? I did. It was lovely. Excellent. I think I also like not having this albatross of episodes. Like, <laughs> I, I like being able to see the end. It feels really in reach, and I quite like that. That's really good for my for my uh, mental health. <laughs> um, but it is fun to be back for this little kind of mini side project you know this is something which is this is canonical only falls but this is something completely different really yeah i actually uh didn't even realize how different it was i i spoke to bob beforehand and asked him if he did much research and he quite intelligently said that he didn't want to do any spoilers so left the research till after so uh contrary to what what we've done in previous episodes i did exactly the same gave nothing away and uh yeah probably worked uh in the fa- in my favor really I, I mean the main difference is this isn't a sitcom which i i didn't really know i kind of just assumed it was a, a more elaborate sitcom sitcom like a only full special and and it's nothing like that that the the tone isn't even remotely the same yeah the, the whole feel of it is completely different it's it's almost doesn't feel like it's written by the same person it's completely different in the way it's filmed, the way it's put together, the direction, the production, the acting styles are completely different. It is a completely different animal. It just happens to be written by the same person. But that that's good enough for us. It is uh, the same characters, although at a different time. So we decided that we, we should do it. So uh, filming began in nine, uh, 2009, uh, October 2009. They didn't quite get the budget or the schedule thereafter. It only took 19 days for this special um, to go, and it was only ever filmed as a, a single episode. They, Sullivan obviously had loads of things in the pipeline, but nothing was commissioned or promised. It was essentially a, a one-off at that first point, as far as I read. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the history of it in general is, just, it is very interesting. I mean, this says... 
I read that it was conceived back in in 96, kind of at the end of the original run of Only Fools. And it had even been commissioned to to start straight after Only Fools and Horses finished, but then got basically sidelined by Green Green Grass. And kind of that took the, the slot, as it were. So then Green Green Grass came along instead. They did that for, you know, sort of four or five years. And then... This kind of, they, they kind of reopened the book on this and decided to give it a go, which is why we've got this kind of huge, almost inexplicable gap of Only Fools. It it could have been made years earlier and we could have ended up with completely different actors and everything could have been different. I imagine that budget problem wouldn't have been as bad either because I, I read that from a, a Nick Linhurst quote that this should have had the budget of a, of a costume drama because it's set in the 60s. Uh, but they they just didn't get it, and that creates so many issues. So maybe if they'd been able to do it straight after Only Falls and kind of ride that momentum a bit more, maybe they would have got a much bigger budget and a longer shoot. I mean, 19 days to make a 90-minute piece of period television is insane. Yeah, the whole thing's pretty mad. Uh, so the, the proposed prequel was uh, originally called Once Upon a Time in Peckham, which I actually quite like the name of. Um, but yeah, it, it being shelved for green, green grass, I feel like I would have just much preferred for this to have gone on and us to have experimented more in this area rather than the green, green grass. Although I haven't seen green, green grass and realistically I'm only just like one episode deep in this. I can't help but feel there's a, a shed load more of intrigue into this than there would be in a, a spin-off of Boise. But, you know, I, I'm only speaking from what my, my gut instinct would be. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, it, it's surprising that things happened this way around. It's really surprising. I guess what, what the, the commissioners wanted at the time was another studio sitcom and this was never going to be it so the green green grass kind of filled that hole i actually read that originally um the name for the kind of concept had been sex drugs and rock and chips oh, i think i did read that somewhere which, else as well which but... makes sense because rock and chips i think is a pretty pants name I don't think it's very good. I must right, I I'm obviously way younger than this is obviously in the 1960s this is set. But the term rock and chips despite having grown up an hour outside London and you know eating fish and chips my entire life I'd never heard of the expression rock and chips. Had you? No, I I no I think it puzzled a lot of people. I, I don't know if say the dearest mother or people you know, who even then weren't born in the 60s were aware of that. And th- so that it comes from the uh, the staple diet uh, of rock salmon. I-, I knew it was rock salmon because, well, actually, I, I thought well, there's also a rock cod. I knew it would be a rock a fish called rock something. But yeah, and the, the whole idea is that, that there wasn't much to do in this sort of period of time. This was even before the Beatles were around. That's This is how old it is. Mm. Like This is like ancient. Sorry for anyone who's 60 years old. London isn't like sexy yet. I think that was a big thing that was, I'd yeah. read in one of the interviews that, that made it interesting. And I'd never really thought about it is 50s, 60s. London is still, you know, recovering from the war and a bit negative, you know, it's really the late sixties and seventies that we really get that kind of boom of like London scene and and London calling and Britain becoming this kind of big cultural phenomenon again. 
Yeah, it was a, a very unglamorous life. And I think that's, like it says, that the, the pictures of the flicks was one of the only things that, that people had to do a fun, which is why quite a bit of the the plot is centred around that. Yeah, that was a nice idea that I, I really wish a, a lot of these concepts that we're talking about now I read about afterwards and I don't think were necessarily expressed that well in the show. Like the show is generally a bit uh, grim, but that whole thing about, you know, the pictures being the only form of glamour, looking at, you know, once reading that afterwards and thinking about the show, I was like, okay, I could see how they were trying to do that. But I feel like that maybe wasn't put across as well as as it could have been. There was one more thing with that whole, like, budgeting costume drama thing that I found quite interesting, uh, just because of um, James Buckley being the being Del Boy. So, interesting little factoid. The Inbetweeners was written by two guys, basically, about their life in school in the 80s. And the only reason it wasn't set in the 80s, The Inbetweeners, is because it would be too expensive to do so. It's the only reason. The whole of the in-betweeners should be set in the 80s, which is why there's almost zero mention of like phones and computers and anything modern, because it's based on the experience of two guys who went to school in the 80s and, yeah, I think the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but you instantly have to bring the budget up 10 times if you're going to take it out of the modern now. So they didn't. So they just slightly tweaked a few things to vaguely make it make sense to be 20 years later but if you watch in between us it's it's basically going to be any time from sort of early 80s to to mid teens and this was clearly a problem that this show had all right well that is some uh, preamble and a half uh our appetites are pretty wet for this i mean i've just thought i don't know what i'm gonna we're about to go into the uh, episode i don't even know how we're gonna segue into this am i gonna use the only fools soundtrack is that happening why the hell not? It's only Fool's Cannon. Uh, we can keep it going. Good. That saves me another job. All right. So uh, it is uh, Series 1, Episode 1 of Rock and Chips, uh, which is just called Rock and Chips, or the pilot, but I did read somewhere was also referred to as the story so far. So take your pick. <laughs> So the intro it is February 1960. We've got a duller beige colour palette for the film. I was so oblivious to the time frame of this that I thought this was going to be like a setup for the show and then realised that it was just set now. <laughs> I thought it was like, oh, okay, where do we get into the real time? Oh, no, this is the real time. <laughs> 60 years previous. That's. Uh, I-, I was wondering, I don't imagine we have any 60-year-old listeners who would have been around at this time, but uh, if you happen to be listening to this and are 60 plus, give us a shout. Yeah, you'd have to be at least 70 to have any real kind of working memory of this period, but that would be interesting. We see Joan and Grandad, uh, who is called Ted. I'm not sure if we'll refer to him as Ted or Grandad, but either works. It's just call him Grandad because it'd be less weird. Okay, granddad. Um, Joan looks glamorous. She's good-looking, well-groomed, completely beautiful, and heads out the door to work with uh, a shouting Reg from the bedroom, screaming for some tea and toast. Joan! I'm not here! Please, 
Let's have some tea and toast. And we get a little glimpse of Dell and the gang, including the addition of Jumbo Mills in the uh, in the nag's head. And there's a few little hat tips straight away, just a couple of lines and some dialogue and some words, just to sort of make us feel at home in this only fool's world. Yeah, it's a really um, it's quite a fun opening setting scene actually. I mean, the first thing that really kind of hit me is Joan, of course. So I think she is displayed as this um you know she's rocking it she's like walking down the street to some awesome music she is like you say very glamorous and beautiful i think kelly bright who plays joan is awesomely cast and is awesome throughout this whole thing and she really sets this scene well i didn't feel the same way about that little very small exchange um with uh phil daniels as granddad I don't know what it was. He just—I think maybe he was just too young. But then, Granddad's meant to be young. I was just—it felt so wrong. It just felt weird. I didn't know what to make of it. I think—I didn't get what age he was meant to be because <laughs> because Reg is not a young man. I mean, yeah. So I was very confused by everyone's ages and stuff. I guess he's about fifty or sixty. The problem with Phil Daniels is I like the guy, but he's got such a such a recognizable voice like you such a all of the well such a recognizable voice that it of all the characters he was the only one who threw me off and didn't really kind of fit very well i don't know yeah. what it was but i couldn't help but see phil daniels rather than a updated depiction of or a, a past depiction of granddad it was i didn't really buy into it too much it did uh, disperse a little bit as time went on, but it stood out in that opening scene a lot. Yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a great strong kind of opening for 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 that character in the same way that it had been for Joan. I think uh, uh, I I loved her opening. She was uh, she was awesome. Instantly was was drawn to her as a character. And, and yeah, it, it was a very nice idea that they got Jumbo Mills, of course, in there because that would be correct canon. Because we know Jumbo Mills was one of the gang up until he he buggered off to Australia, so that they've been quite smart there. It's it's almost on the one hand you're paying fan service to the real loyal fans by having it be Jumbo Mills, but on the other hand, kind of the casual fan is going to be like Jumbo who? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you miss that one episode, you've got no idea who this bloke is. So it's it's kind of brave. Are they, actually, are they can't they are- I say, are they casual fans? It's like, oh yeah, there are casual fans. I've spoken to a few different people, and like, it comes up. Oh, you got a podcast? What do you do? And like, oh, do a, an Only Fools and Horses uh, episode podcast. I don't know if you've watched it. It's like, oh yeah, I've seen it. A couple of episodes. It's it is quite. I, I'm really surprised that so little people of my age are well, not not are not aware of it, but just haven't seen it very much. Like, I don't know. I, I guess just because we pillaged it as ch- as sort of young kids, I just expect everyone else to have it in the yeah. arsenal. I think we were always a bit sort of ten, fifteen years too late to the party, but we were just uh, blessed by having all the uh, all all the video cassettes in the house. <laughs> 
We get a cut to Freddy the Frog. He is looking at his release papers from Dartmoor. And all of this sort of first setting scene has been going on to the sound of Rockin' Robin, an awesome old school tune. And that is something that massively stands out in this. The soundtrack throughout this whole uh, whole episode is fantastic. Like, just really, really good time for music. And I, I was lapping up whatever I could and the first 15 minutes there's pretty much music going on in the background or you know referred to in the plot all the time and I was loving it yeah they must have used a decent amount of their insufficient budget just on the music because yeah there's lots of very (laughs) recognizable tunes on there I mean that was something they talked about on on Only Fools you know David Jason had talked about one of the things he loved about late Only Fools was was being able to get good music because they had the budget and this was short budgeted but they didn't scrimp on the music you need that to set the scene you 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 cannot have 1960s london without putting the music in there yeah i think you can get 50s and 60s music a lot cheaper than you can say a modern hit who are getting it at 50s and 60s prices i think (laughs) yeah maybe so one of the first things that we see of interest, Jones walking down the road and we see Dell and the lads and Dell and the lads sort of admiring her. Some of the some of the guys sort of piping up and giving her sort of the the verbal version of wolf whiff, wolf whistles. And it's kind of a bit weird, really. Dell Del yeah. is kind of looking at her in the same way as them and smiling. And isn't he isn't being protective or questioning anything. He's so just gazed by his mother. And his response to it all is rather than get shirty or start a fight is just say, yeah, that that's my mum, which is a super interesting choice. This is five minutes into the episode and the initial thought that I had is quite far away from what where I sort of ended up, but you, you can't sort of help but think that there's some weird Freudian love attraction thing going on there. It's kind of a bit hectic, but I think once I'd processed it a bit, Dell just admires her as this like image of what a woman should be. And all of these women around that are sort of, you know, less glamorous and stuff. And she's walking with her head held high, looking great. I think I think he just idolizes her. He just looks up to her. But the the sort of incestual connotations definitely there and it's a little bit weird. It I I mean I agree. It should be more weird than it is, but it actually for me really works for what we know of Dell's character in the future. I mean there were several reference, references to Joan throughout the show which could have been taken as insults where Dell would just found it impossible to ever look at his mother as anything but a saint and Mm. i guess we'd assumed that that was partly because of her death that he kind of put her up on this pedestal and so this idea that he was like that even when she was alive i actually quite like i mean if you've never seen the show it seems a bit creepy and i totally Mm. get that i mean there is only 11 years between the characters in in real life the actors sorry in real life um Oh really? Yeah, there's not not a huge difference at all. I mean, uh, they've made James, Kelly Brock Buck- a lot older, than, reasonably older than she is. I think. Yeah, I mean, James Buckley always looks younger than he is and plays younger characters than he is, and 
Kelly Bright, I think they aged her, and also just the 60s styling ages her a bit. Um, mm. But, uh, I mean, she's only mid-40s now, and this was made well over 10, yeah, over 10 years ago. So she was, I think she was yeah. early 30s, and James Buckley is, like, very early 20s in this point. Um, but, yeah, it's... I like it. I think this, this relationship that Dell has with his mum, where he literally just sees her as perfection, idolises her to the hilt, can't... No matter how he talks or acts around other people or about other people, there is just absolutely no flies on his mum. <laughs> She's just yeah. got this halo, and uh, they've they've set this up quite well straight away. Yeah, I really liked it, although it, it could easily be perceived as... Uh, you know a bit weird I, I did actually love it once you had a, a sort of second to take it in yeah now uh this is quite long it's an hour and a half and we're not going to spend like three hours talking about this so i'm not going to go through it quite in the sort of scene by scene way that we would do the previous episode so gonna skim through um a couple of, of bits as we go on here there's a, a scene in the gym where the lads all turned up turn up they get dobbed in by Slater and the teacher essentially says they're not wanted and this I thought opened up the plot for some sort of out of school activity so they didn't have to belong there so we can sort of watch some more outside of the school activities yeah it was odd this so I I looked this up just because I thought it would have been quite convenient that the exact year that the school leaving age changed is the same year this was all set and a lot of things have to kind of coincide in this show to make it work. Like, it's it's a bit difficult to stitch the timeline together. And, um, yeah, so I, I checked when the school leaving age increased from uh, from 15 to 16. And it was first kind of thought about in 1964 and didn't really come in to kind of full scale until 1974. So um, this is not really correct, sort of. But, uh, it, yeah, just... I thought that was vaguely interesting when when that happened in real life. This is actually quite a bit earlier than that. Nice. We get a little scene with Freddie who sets the scene for the, a job in hand later on the coast. And there's already been a few hat tips to loads of Only Fools and Horses stuff. Uh, Slater walking the plank, various similar words like Brahma and Brassic. The, the, first, the first sort of ten minutes feels... A lot more like, uh, I guess almost forced. I don't know. It's just there's loads of like little things in there to kind of make it feel like we're in an Only Fools and Horses story and home. But it kind of just felt a little bit too much for me on some of those. But it's 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 understandable. Yeah. There's always going to be those crowd pleasers in there. You, they're just they're unavoidable. We then join Joan in the cinema and we get this scene where she's in the office with her boss this horribly creepy guy which is just kind of played really well i did actually kind of like it although it goes a little bit wayward later the initial creepiness of it feels something that would have been probably pretty uh accurate to the time i think and he he it was so horribly creepy it honestly made my skin crawl it was it was very well acted in terms of grossing you out 
Yeah, I mean this this whole idea that uh, you know her as a uh, as a you know young woman working in a cinema would have a a pervy boss you know completely tracks. It's uh, it's horrible. I kind of like the way they play it because obviously it's, it's played it is played for comedy, which you know people might have an issue with, but then actually she really does display her discomfort in a way and. I think it it does address the issue in a, in a really good way. Like she is horrified by this whole experience and isn't just kind of putting up with it. She's well, she kind of is putting up with it, but she's also trying to extract herself from the situation as much as she can. But yeah, this guy is a is a proper piece of work, and just yeah, you take one look at him and you just kind of get a bit. You feel slimier and dirtier just by looking at him. Yeah, you need to have a hot shower. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there are comedic elements in it. I'm not sure if I could say it was played for comedy. It, it seems quite equal in its measure of some comedy to take away some of the nastiness of it. But it it feels like a fairly even split between comedy mm. and like, drama or whatever seriousness you want to talk about. It, it was about this time I did start to... I, I actually wrote down the bullet point. Is this a comedy or a drama? And it was it was around here I started to get the most confused, um, but then it was interesting. The very next scene, uh, we're we're actually back with Freddie in the in the cafe, and it's kind of the first scene that made me laugh. Mm, it, and it's a it's, it's a really weird one, but there's this great interplay between Freddie and his and his right hand man, as just to kind of very subtly uh, show us that he is not a man to be messed with. And the subtlety of it is perfect. And I, I, it's a great scene. Put Johnny Ray on. What? Put Johnny Ray on. Johnny Ray? Yeah, put Johnny Ray on. Why? Because he said, because I said, put Johnny Ray on. Put Johnny Ray on. Put Johnny Ray on. I don't like Johnny Ray. I do. He does. Everyone likes Johnny Ray. I like Johnny Ray. He likes Johnny Ray. He likes Johnny Ray. Do you like Johnny Ray? Yeah. Put Johnny Ray on. Put Johnny Ray. Put Johnny Ray on. Put Johnny Ray on. Who's this? It's Johnny Ray. Good choice. This is the first time that we see some of Freddie's menace and Ooh, menace. Great word. <laughs> really, really believe it. Really, just kind of in an instant for for something that doesn't directly relate to violence or a sort of classic image of your villain it it just worked on a really good level and you just kind of believed that he's not to be messed with it's it's very cleverly done what what's great is possibly the the most amazing part of it for both the writing choice and also Nick Lynhurst acting it is he's sitting down eating I mean, that's his mm. most unintimidating position that a human being can be in beyond, you know, being asleep naked in a bed. I mean, this is kind of like one stage up. You're sitting down and eating, and yet he's just oozing, like, power and, yeah, mm. menace, as you said. And it, it's great. It's so well done. We learn that Joan has a second job, um, one that is referred to in Only Fools for the Council, it's a much sort of nicer professional role with a fairly stand-up boss. Uh, we're in this office and we see the, 
a big portrait and architectural sort of drawing of what we can only assume is Nelson Mandela House and Joan is asking about applying for the housing but the, the boss man says that it's sort of prioritised for families and, and young children and she's unlikely to have, have much of a hope. Yeah, I think the, the idea of her at this time having another child was uh, genuinely scary. <laughs> <laughs> so why would I ever do such a thing with that man? We then get another home scene and Reg is sort of really enforcing how much of a dick he is. Uh, he just seems to get more and more insulting uh, to to Joan until Dell squares up to him and just offers him outside. A really ballsy move that felt really true to character and in true Reg fashion, he just backs down and Dell then offers his mum a fiver, which he got from uh, selling some flogged imported records. But it was a really sort of great moment for establishing that that sort of character dynamic at home quickly. And it was, again, felt really true to to the, the characters that we would expect and the way that we would expect them to act. It's like, did you think that scene, did that really work for you then, that exchange between them? Yeah, I thought it was quite good. I thought Roger was being a massive dickhead. Dale stood up for his mum. We know him to be a little bit of a, a fighter. We know that they've, you know, pretty much had loggerheads before. I think the issue, I mean, I thought um, the way that um, uh, Sean Sean Dingwall playing Reg, I thought he played it perfectly. He's he's kind of this bigger, you know, wearing a wearing a wife beater. And he's got his braces out in this way that kind of an intimidating, useless alcoholic husband might be. And I think he plays it perfectly. And even the way he stands down is also spot on for his kind of lazy, useless character. And I think he did it really well. But this is probably the one scene in the whole episode that I think James Buckley just doesn't quite nail. I don't oh, yeah? buy it. I do, he's not he's not intimidating enough. Like he's he's standing there opposite his dad, who's got his arms out, who's got a few inches on him, who's much meatier than he is, and who isn't old old. And James Buckley, in his kind of slightly higher pitched voice, is got is a bit like, "Come on in." I just don't buy that his dad would step down from the way he acted. I just, I didn't quite, I would have liked to have seen a bit more, I didn't believe the aggression from from James Buckley in that scene. I just didn't quite buy it. I just felt that it wasn't needed because Reg is so much of a coward. Like, that comes up quite a bit throughout the episode that as soon as anything happens where someone gives Reg anything back he backs down because he's just a yellow belly so it didn't actually need that much from Dale's character for him to actually go wow I can't actually be bothered to do anything about it I I do kind of get what you mean but this is possibly like the impasse of the first time Dale stands up to his old man or or certainly sort of fairly on early on in that time so I don't I don't know that Dale would I think he would be reserved about doing it, but I I can get what you mean. Yeah, I just I I really think Sean Dingle played it perfect. Like Reg, I totally buy very well. I think throughout the episode as well. But I just I think Dell's got a little bit of a of a darker side, which I guess maybe comes on later. But I just wanted to see a bit more of that, a bit more of the he can handle himself amount. I mean, James Buckley is quite sort of tall and slim. 
and it that so it's, I just he's not quite got the the build that you associate with Dell, mm. and and so with that and his voice as well, he's not he's the he's not at all intimidating. I mean, pretty much every character he's ever played, apart from this, being not intimidating is almost one of their defining characteristics. So, <laughs> so he he needs to really sell it for me, and I I think he's slightly full. I think he falls short. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of episodes if we get a bit more of sort of yeah Dell and the the fighting Dell. I mean, I don't want to see him necessarily get the knuckle duster out, but I'd be happy <laughs> to sort of see a, a bit more sort of uh, confident aggression where where yeah. it might be. I, I th- he oozes confidence in a way that's very Dell, and he has done in all these scenes, and uh, he plays the laughs and the jokes very well. But I just I want to see a little bit more of that aggression almost for lack of a better word but we do end this scene on a little bit of comedy and it's another simple line by granddad you got a good nerd Joni love yeah what's he mean he's staying out tonight don't know maybe he's going night fishing oh of course that'd explain the suit and tie and all them rods and maggots he was carrying night fishing well, I think you'll find he's trying to work something. I, I really enjoyed that line from uh, from Joan. Actually, I, I thought that was I thought she played that really well. Joan's got a really good sense of humour, and I yeah. think that's really important for the for the character as well. That Dredge has none, but Granddad clearly does. Joan does, and that, and that definitely helps to sort of feed into the dynamic we have of. Dell and Rodney in that home life that there's a lot of fun and jokes at home and, and that works really well so we've got two interesting little scenes going here side by side here on the one hand we've got Dell and Boise uh, round um, with a couple of girls who are very badly trying to look cool while smoking in a way that I thought was actually very good and I quite enjoyed and uh, Dell and Boise looking incredibly awkward and not really sure what to do. Yeah, if their actions are anything to go by, I don't think teenage girls and or boys have really changed much in the 60 years. Like, <laughs> it, although it seemed like everything around them was, you know, from a different time, they were just as annoying and useless as they probably are today. <laughs> yeah, actually, when you really break it down and take away all the mod cons, essentially we're the exact same. <laughs> Going on at the same time, we jump between scene to scene. We've got all the adults down the pub. So we've got um, Reg, we find out, is uh, up to no good with a barmaid down the nag's head. Of course, where else would they be? And, and uh, meanwhile, Joan's paying for all the drinks because Reg is useless. Yeah, well, Re- well actually, um, so Reg recognises Freddy at the bar and sort of gams a drink from him. It kind of feels like he's almost played him. <laughs> and takes a seat, and and Joan walks in, and he he hasn't got Joan a drink because he's an asshole, and she goes to the bar and gets completely shunned by the barman. And th- I really love really love this. Freddie proper pipes up at this bit, and mm. I really loved the way that that this was just filmed and shot. I'll, I'll give you a little quote because it's great. Don, Don, could I? Don, when you're ready. Do you hear me, Arthur? Governor, lady was first. Yeah, I'll be with you in a minute, Jan. Oi, Cocker, did you hear me? The lady was first. 
Right. What'll it be? Could I have a gin and orange, please? Thanks. That's on my round. And I just thought it'd be really interesting to see how this character developed. Like, at the end of Only Fools and sort of throughout most of the episodes... Freddie is painted out to be a, a pretty horrible bastard, but I kind of am loving his character at the <laughs> moment. I'm I'm really enjoying everything that he's about. I mean, yeah, he's a villain and he's obviously, you know, turning people over, but frankly, so was so was Dell and so is Dell, and we love Dell. But at the moment, although there's a bit of a game afoot for everything that he's doing. I kind of am liking the character and I'm not getting like evil villain from him. So again, I, I don't know if that's going to come out a bit later or not. At, at this point in the, in the episode, I actually completely agree with you. I think he's, uh, he's kind of playing that. He's kind of playing that gentleman villain, you know, that kind of highwayman thing mm. at this point. And uh, that, that's a lot of fun. And uh, Nicolin Hurst is just absolutely nailing it. Like this is the first scene between, um, you know, Joan and and Freddie, and we'll talk more about it at the end. But these two are without doubt the thing that's holding this whole thing together. They are both fantastic, in my opinion. The two, uh, by far, best performances, most interesting characters, best actors, and yeah, it's uh, there is absolutely none of Rodney in Freddie, like. Absolutely. This is Nick Linhurst playing a completely different character and I'm I'm completely sold instantly. I I've I'm not at one point thinking of Rodney while he's playing Freddy, which is mental. I've you know, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours watching him play one character and within ten minutes I'm like I completely buy him as Freddy the Frog and Rodney Who. Yeah, I mean I, I literally have exactly the same sort of note and take on that a, a bit later in my notes as I was watching and, and it basically echoes exactly what you said like I realized about sort of halfway through that Lynn Hurst playing Freddy he, he's just such a, a, a different world such a different character I just completely forgot that I was basically looking at Rodney with a mustache <laughs> like that that's all we're looking at but massive hats off to Lynn Hurst I, I found his performance so convincing and for someone that's so recognisable, you know, tall and thin, a little bit sort of weedy, like he he isn't someone that goes into the background. He he you can see him on set and in the frame no matter what you're doing. And like you say, we've watched Rodney for thousands of hours and not even for a second did I think either that I was watching Rodney. Like I, I feel like I attribute Rodney's character to what i think nick Lynhurst is like you know when you mm. same as like yeah, you, do, yeah. you expect if you met david jason you'd expect him to be del boy like but because that wasn't there it was like it wasn't even nick Lynhurst. like yeah. it, it didn't feel like i was watching him at all it was truly just proper good acting and i've always thought he was quite a good actor anyway but i think just just this episode has like doubled or tripled what i already thought of him in, in terms of his ability which was if nothing else this was worth watching just for that yeah I mean, th- there's a little thing that he's been doing continuously already which is he calls everyone cocker 
uh, in this way that is very, very reminiscent of how um, The Great Gatsby calls everyone sport. It really reminded me of that. And it's really, it's really good. It's, uh, it's one of those things that just like in Great in, in The Great Gatsby could be incredibly corny and it's actually quite difficult to pull off but he he really does bear in mind it's a word that is almost never said anymore like i know the expression cocker i've heard it but i look twice if someone used it and wonder what time portal they've just fallen through (laughs) but he completely pulls it off and uh it's very very believable and it's said always with this kind of hint of aggression where it's actually quite quite a uh a friendly expression, but he says it in, in, in quite a ominous way, always. Cause if you are the best, but you don't ask questions, then brother, I'm your man. We didn't see another quick scene with Dylan Boise in the girl's house. And again here, I just took a moment to sort of admire the aesthetic. Del goes for a piss in the sink, basically, because there's no... Uh, the, the toilet is upstairs and the girls and Nan sleeping upstairs. But the thing that triggered this was the washing up liquid. He washes his hand in the sink and there's a white bottle of washing up liquid, like the old as old school as hell fairy liquid. And I, for some reason, I hadn't really been looking at the set design and the costume that much. But just that bottle just like regressed me like 30 years. And I was like, oh my God, there's so many things around which are done really well. And sort of post watching the episode, reading that they obviously struggled for budget, you wouldn't know it. I, I didn't know. I actually thought it was really, I thought it was a high budgeted thing in fact on my intro that i wrote before i did my research i actually wrote as a it's clearly a bigger bigger budgeted series because i assumed they probably had an open checkbook so i was really surprised to read that that it was on a shoestring with all of this great set and aesthetic around well i i think it the one thing that's great whenever you make it something with the uh, the bbc is the clothing and a lot of the set stuff will will just be there they've got all that stuff just hanging around that mm. you know they've got they've got fairy liquid <laughs> from the 1940s 50s 60s 70s and today you know just that, that, that stuff's all available it's like your old local local radio station yeah. all the hits um you after the uh 65 baby one or when it moved to the green sif uh yeah. double ended <laughs> that guy works in a little cupboard somewhere in bbc hq um so yeah the, the it did look good, uh, and all the stuff. Was, and I always love all that old stuff. Like I, I'm always looking at like the old beer bottles and the old cigarette packets. Always really stand out to me. Anything kind of food and drink related, basically. Um, that's that's always really interesting. We go back to the Trotter's house. Uh, Reg is a little bit sozzled. He's trying to wake up Joan to make a round of sandwiches like a good old boy, and she gets up, bowls around in a dressing gown and sort of makes the uh, the sandwiches and sort of heads out the door. Now, Freddie follows her. He's sort of got a bit of a tell as he's looked back at the door that he might well be on and he sort of predicted it. And sort of super confident and bold, leans down and goes for this kiss. And this is properly amazing. This was, I don't just absolutely captivated me joan is entirely motionless 
She doesn't move. She doesn't breathe. Her eyes don't even close. Her lips don't purse. She just thousand yard stares as Freddy kisses her lips for a couple of seconds and then comes up again. And just this depiction of this like resisting wife having no idea what to do. So oblivious in this completely loveless marriage with a horrible guy. It's just just such an incredible moment it only lasted a few seconds but i was like wide-eyed as i watched it something just massively jumped out for it and i at that moment i just thought kelly bright is a legend yeah i'll talk about it more as it comes up later but i think it was around this point my opinion on freddie started to kind of slightly shift and i started Mm. to see this slightly more um you know, thoughtless, more like I'm going to get what I want, irrelevant of anyone else's thoughts, kind of kick in because that's exactly what he's done here. I mean, this is essential. This, by modern day standards, would be considered a, a mild assault. So, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it is. There's no, there's no messing around. Um, uh, it's so, a really hard topic though, because at what point do you go for a kiss on a first date? Like, you go out for a date with someone, well, you, for, get out for you, a kiss. What you do is first, you make sure they're not married. Yeah, the marriage bit is a bit the, the marriage bit because I agree the whole first date thing. This is this is a thing that people talk about a lot now. It's like oh, you can't kiss a girl on a first date. It's like now the rules are all different. There, everyone knows that at some point someone she... has to lean forward. That that's a whole different <laughs> world. Most of the times when people are doing things they shouldn't, it it's not in those situations. It's very rare that there's a grey area. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but then part of me is like she could do with an escape from this horrible life. And I'm like, fair play. I mean, not knowing obviously that Freddie's a massive criminal that aside, he could be a really nice guy. And if he's going to give her away yeah, yeah. out of this mm. horrible life with that horrible bloke again, I mean, I can't, there, basically there are sides to both this argument, but I, I do get that it was a very bold move. Yeah. yeah. Very early in the game <laughs> has literally seen her and met her once. And then kissed her for a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, he's getting a bit James Bondy up in here, <laughs> and and that is a that is a thing that continues throughout the rest of this episode for me. We get a a pretty quick scene again of Dell and Jumbo Mills. They are selling carpets out the back of a van. Uh, even as far as using Joan, their mum is a bit of a stooge who in sort of a, a practiced fashion that Dell uses Dell will use years later than the track, having someone else sort of buy the goods before uh, anyone else does. But um there's not really a crowd there, so it kind of feels like it's a dress rehearsal. <laughs> I don't really know what's well, going on. I, I actually really liked this scene. So you've got all these you, you know, all their friends kind of gathered around this truck, uh, this kind of lorry, and they're pulling out this hundred percent nylon blue carpet. And uh, what's nice about this kind of setting of this kind of old school London street is everyone's just kind of hanging out their door. So although no one's around, everyone's listening. And so everyone's mm. kind of hearing a, hearing a commotion. And I quite like the subtlety of it because the idea here is this is like Dell just starting to buy and sell stuff. So this is stuff that they're getting from down the docks because Denzel's old man, man works security down the docks. And, you know, so him taking advantage of Denzel to make, try and make a few quid for himself goes way back. 
and and this is kind of the 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 embryo of that concept and i i like that kind of understatedness to it and you you see delboy being delboy straight away and doing it with jumbo as well is uh, it's good fun because jumbo is kind of playing the right hand man that you kind of always see Dell and Rodney doing, not in the same way. He's not playing it like a Rodney, but it's nice to see have have Dell have a number two. Mm-hmm. It it works really well, and of course that should be Jumbo. Mm. We get another super seedy scene with uh, Mister Rayner, who calls Joan back into the office to make her into an assistant manager. Lots of inappropriate touching over the. Uh, the clothes and what have you, but sort of just re-establishing that horrid element. Uh, we then go back to the house and see Reg steal money out of Joan's purse before going out to uh, before going out because apparently Freddie wants to talk to him about a job or something. There is a little like funny um, one of the, again one of the few kind of comedy bits throughout here, which is uh, as Red is leaving, he's being electrocuted by everything because of the nylon carpet, which just really made me chuckle because this is something that uh, my missus especially complains about all the time. If it's been like not raining here for about a week, I don't know what it is. We don't have carpets. We we hardly have anything polyester in the house because of this problem. But you just somehow just get electrocuted by everything all the time. <laughs> I don't I don't remember this being a problem growing up. But as an adult, I think as soon as it's dry for a week in this town, everything's electrocuting me, and it drives me mad. I like it. I like getting electrocuted. It's like a little sort of shocked and let you know that you're alive. <laughs> Because it, it's never dangerous. It's just like ah, you bastard, and you just always you always swear at it, and then that's it. Yeah, I feel a bit well, more like, happier. You go to like you know hug your child or something, and you end up electrocuting each other or something like that. <laughs> that's when it happens. Or like you do it on the end of the dog's nose or something accidentally when you go in to stroke the dog. <laughs> yeah. That that it's the human contact that generally does it, which is the, or when you're like closing the door on the way to the toilet or something ridiculous. Uh, I don't know where it was, but I, I've been somewhere where I spent quite a lot of time making out with a girlfriend somewhere and it was full of static and I don't know if we were like holiday for a week or something but just electrocuted ourselves like on loads of different body parts throughout the week like your noses and your lips and your tongues electrocuting each other on the lips is really really painful (laughs) you wouldn't believe it it magnifies the uh the the static by about a hundred and you both pull away like ah my face yeah that hurts man but lo and behold freddie has played a bit of a game uh he is actually at the door and asking for some uh some details of numbers joan goes in to get the numbers and he just basically lets himself in which is uh, yeah, a little bit much, but, you know, he's playing a game. And he's trying to trying to woo her. He's he's telling this story that, that goes completely over Joan's head, which was kind of brilliant. My mum died in the blitz. I'm sorry. Horrible, isn't it? Family deaths. My cousin Norman died last month. He worked up the Nescafe factory. He had an industrial accident. Fell into a vat of coffee powder and suffocated. Oh, God. What a horrible way to go. No, it was instant. Oh, well, I suppose that's a small consolation. 
Yeah, this this whole scene is a lot of fun with uh, with these two again, of course, as we've said, the best two. And we get to see this uh, kind of genuine chemistry between them, even though they basically have nothing in common. Uh, they seem to be kind of getting on quite well. I do think this is where more of this kind of James Bond villainy stuff kind of comes from, from Freddy. So he's always deliberately not giving her as much as she wants. He's kind of walking her up to the line and then stepping back in terms of like, oh, am I interested? Ah, oh, no, nah, no, nah, I'm just playing with you. Oh, am I interested? Really? Yeah, there's a few he of those. He kissed mo- her like a scene ago and you thought he was being too bold. No, but this is this is almost worse because he's he's almost taunting her, I feel, in these points. It, he's almost, this is where he, I feel like he's really taking control in a very like, toxic masculine way for lack of a better term like i feel he's starting to play he starts to play with her in this scene a bit and even more so in later scenes and see i just didn't i just didn't get that it just felt like he was besotted and was i don't get me wrong he's using all the moves but i felt like he was using all the moves because he genuinely liked her slash felt like he was loving her like i didn't i didn't get the sense of a game it it felt genuine Ah, uh, see, yeah, see, I don't, I, uh, I, not at all. I very much felt like this was a game for him. I didn't buy for one second that he's thinking I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this woman. I didn't buy that at all. Uh, th- this is yeah. this is for me. This is a game for for Freddie, and that's the bit that's a bit sad. But even because... comes up later, just to go forwards, that he says he's in love with her. Like M- maybe he does, maybe get more that way but i don't really buy that i really don't no i don't buy it well i really did but we won't go into that now because we've got a bit more plot to be getting on with unfortunately joan does decide to let slip that she's been promoted and has to look after some sort of loads of money some loads of money that goes into the safe and that very sharply heads on to the next scene where we see an explosion from the outside of the cinema no, uh, no prizes for who's done that. I really love the quote from from Freddie when to himself when he says, "I wish you hadn't told me that." When she that says about how so much, good. it's so good because you, it tells you everything about that character. He's like, oh, "I don't want to do this, but I just can't not." You've given me too good an opportunity, yeah. and I am, I am a thief at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what am I going to oh. do? It's uh, it feels like a Michelin web sketch or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I have, in as we uh, like to do, use the historical inflation calculator. Oh yeah, Jesus, going all the way back to the sixties now. Yes, so she says she can look up uh, the in the safe on a Saturday. There could be up to two thousand pounds. Before you do the reveal, it's funny because. When it's for in a previous scene, much before the Mister Rayner boss guy says, you know, up to two thousand pounds, and it kind of feels like they're like he's overegging it as a lot of money, but I thought two thousand pounds is a lot of money back yeah, then. Loads, like it feels yeah. like a a shitload of money. So it's kind of a weird choice, but I mean, I mean it's got to be worth over ten grand, surely. Quite a lot more. Do you want to try again? 30? 47. 
Just shy of 50. That is a shitload of money. It is, isn't it? As if there would be 50 grand in a little pikey (laughs) cinema like that. Well, yeah, maybe not in one like that, but I'm thinking a cinema today is probably taking 50k on a Saturday night. That's totally believable. They wouldn't have it in cash these days. But, I mean, I've worked... I I know restaurants and and shops that might have yeah but how how many screens could that place have like a couple <laughs> three <laughs> yeah exactly maybe Can you get maybe one and when we see that when we see that theater um later on there's probably like 30 or 40 seats in it and they're probably only showing a couple of movies a night so yeah let's say there's 50 there seats be... 50 seats for kind of generous steak and then yeah you kind of do that mass how do you make yeah, maybe that's uh, that's forty quid a seat in a day when it probably cost ten pence to go. Yeah, that's the thing. The ticket prices are like oh, it's a threepence or whatever it was <laughs> yeah. back then. I did. I I can't remember when it came up and when I made the note. Maybe yeah, it comes up later actually. But I'll bring it up now. We're talking money. Is pre decimalization pre decimalization money. <laughs> Seamless, no one knows. <laughs> you got to keep them all in, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> that old school money is mental. Who ever thought that 12 p's to a shilling and then 20 shillings to a pound made any sense to anyone? Oh, did it's... you know that or did you just have the note in front of I you? I had to look it up. I knew that there were 12 pence to a shilling. I seem to remember that for some mental reason. But I was like, and then how many shillings to a pound? I mean, 10 would make sense. But oh no, it's 20. What's the point in a shilling? Why would you have like something in between the... the... Let's not go into it. I mean, they had, they had half pennies. Like, why, <laughs> why would you need your... Why would your smallest domination, denomination be smaller than one? It's like a half penny the same. Oh, no, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> right, there's been an explosion at the cinema. It's clearly Freddy. Uh, the next <laughs> the next scene is back in Mr. Rainier's office, the uh, stand-up gentleman who goes off uh, saying that everyone has to learn self-defence because he learned it in the army. And he very weirdly ends up scooting behind Joan and sort of puts her in a bit of a shit Nelson, uh, full Nelson, and uh, apparently gets a hard-on. No, no, he, I think, no, he, I think he, I, I think he fully on spaffs in his pants. No, no, because seconds later, he's then caught with his trousers down as he's trying to finish the job. Uh, yeah. So I think she just, I think she just felt a little sort of minor penetration. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, she might have just felt the hard thing. Yeah, it okay. did look like a spaff because he because he pulls the spaffy like face, recoiled. Yeah, he pulls the spaffy face, but I think it was just uh, his his schlong touching. Anyway, no, yeah, I think ne- you're right. Nevertheless, yeah. so that bit happens, um, and it's probably a bit of a step too far for me. I kind of believed and in not I don't want to say enjoyed but I appreciated the dynamic and that it probably existed and believed it uh but that that kind of took it a little bit too far for me and it, and it crossed the line I think that was the the first bit that I thought the episode had probably pushed a little bit more than I wanted it to like I think it I think it over I think it just went a bit far 
There seem to me to be several characters in this episode that are playing a completely different show. Like, there's a real inconsistency in how big the characters are. Like, all the main characters are quite subtle, actually. I mean, Joan and Freddy, even Reg to a degree, are played very straight and serious and quite normal, down-to-earth and realistic. And then there's several other characters which are like that as well. Like, Rini's pretty normal and her fella's normal and a few others. But then you've just got quite a few of these, like, crazy, big, silly sitcom characters. And just, like, this doesn't really fit. Like, these people don't exist in the same universe. I don't know. I think in most places you've got you've got most people who are normal and then you have the eccentricities or the weirdos but, and the, but these the, are specifically the, playing it like they are extras in uh not that i've ever seen it like a mrs brown boys or or so, you know what i mean like they're playing it bit they're playing big i, I can't think of another i'm just thinking of something that's definitely big <laughs> um you know they're, they're playing really really big in a way that doesn't fit the ambience of of what this show is and i feel like that was partly an acting problem and partly a directing problem i don't know i i, I actually i really enjoyed the the sort of standoutness of his character and in sort of a, an air of normality i i thought that kind of it, it up until the point where it went there I actually thought it was believable and with the whole sort of some of the restrictions on sexual practices in the sort of public eye, I think there were quite a few more people that were uncomfortable and seedy in that kind of way. And I, and for me, it, it actually seemed true to a version of what I imagine life would have been like and that those people would stand out like a sore thumb, like they would they would be, and those are those weird people, especially in like, you know, exposés about people back that long ago who were outwardly creepy and seedy and weird. And, and, just, and just, F- say th- just, just say Jimmy Savile. We all know you're talking yeah, about yeah, Jimmy yeah. Savile. <laughs> <laughs> but but there, were, there were those people like that, you know, and, and they really existed. And it, yeah. and it was not fair. spoken... It, it was not spoken about then, and pe- because of that, there were more "quote unquote" weirdos around. And for me, that felt not in a different world, but actually felt it probably was as horrible as that. And women were viewed very poorly in society then, comparatively, and most of them probably suffered things like that. And I didn't. I didn't see it as like a an an overact or anything. I I until again until that point, I thought, yeah, that that's probably actually what might well have been happening. Just the the whole boner bit was a little bit like, yeah, you've taken it one too far now. Yeah, I I I don't disagree at all that this thing was happening all the time, a a, a terrifying amount. I just think very there is ways that both this character, I think also the the character in the gym, the teacher, um, and there's one or two. He, others. he was shit. I didn't like him. And yeah, there was one or two others as well where I just felt like the the other guy in the cinema as well, the little ginger kid. Um, mm. 
these people aren't playing a character that is um, edgy and weird. They're playing uh, an odd character in a big kind of comic production kind of way in a way that I just didn't... it, it was a very specific type of character that I could see in another type of show. Yeah, you but, d- with the teacher and the and the sort of ginger understudy kid. Definitely, I can see what you mean. They, the the style of acting or portrayal was not really akin to the drama uh, sort of feel that mm. that this had, and I, I do get that. Um, and there are definitely elements of that with the boss. Um, but, uh, but it didn't stand out that much, and until that sort of point. Fair play. But then Freddy takes the uh, the scam to the next level, and essentially cons Reg into driving to Guildford by offering him his jag. And let's just take a moment to appreciate the jag. Um, it's a nineteen fifty nine Mark Nine jag. Just in case you're wondering, I was wondering. It is a stunning car. So, so nice. Um, I think if you've listened to all of our pods, we've mentioned once or twice that Bob and I are a bit Jagophiles. But uh, yeah, early Jag marks specifically are just like the most best cars ever. Our old man had a, a couple of Mark II Jags long, long, long ago when we were very young. And I've sort of always just put that era of car that sort of late 50s 60s jags on the highest pedestal as just the nicest car ever invented the the mark ii jack is the same one that uh, inspector morse drove if in case you needed the visual and yeah it's a beautiful beautiful sort of era of car yeah it, it, that is an absolutely stunning machine and reg's reaction to being allowed to drive it is Spot on. He he feels like he's just won the lottery. So yeah, Freddy has pulled a fast one. He has managed to jam the fuel gauge so that it always reads full. Pretty genius idea. Didn't know you could do that, but entirely believable on a car from 1959. I reckon you could and, pull uh, it off on a car today, right? You just took off the plastic windshield and stick something in there. It would probably work. I mean, it's a mechanical no, he does, dial. He, 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 he does it under the bonnet. No, he, but, he, he doesn't. He just pull out a, like a... Th- you think he did it under the bonnet? Yeah, I think he pulls out something under the bonnet that would stop it reading through. But the... Uh, yeah, you know how yeah, hard it is to take plastic off the dashboard? <laughs> it's it's yeah, so much well, effort. Yeah, they definitely I, don't want I, you to I, do I, it, but... I can tell you because uh, I had to get a car MOT'd in New Zealand at one point and uh, the little light saying there's a problem wouldn't go off so I took off the whole dash and then stuck a bit of tape over it so it didn't shine anymore. You took the bulb out? You did proper Del Boy? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even take the bulb out. I just stuck some electrical tape over it behind the lens so that it didn't didn't shine out. And that worked? No more light. Yeah, yeah, it didn't. The, the light didn't shine anymore. Mate, so whoever was doing your MOT needs shooting. That's shocking. Oh, mate, if there's no light on, what's the problem? <laughs> the light indicates a problem. The light isn't the problem. <laughs> ah, there was no problem. <laughs> so, uh, Reg, uh, Rini, 
and a couple of others are all stranded. And then we see Freddy properly just alone with Joan. He's staring into her eyes lovingly, wishing he was Reg, with a bit of bark going on in the background. Joan has sort of dyed her hair this very outlandish blonde sort of a and sort of styled it akin to Marilyn Monroe and in this close-up it sort of made her look a bit younger and just this extra bit more glamorous and she's looking even more beautiful once you sort of get past the shock of it it kind of rocks works really well for her and she's rocking it and then sort of Freddie asks her to dance and Joan just puts it all together that that this isn't just some sort of like luck that's happened. It, it's all been a bit of a plan by Freddy. They're not coming to the party, are they? No. They never were, were they? No. It was always just you and me? Yes. Tell me, Mr. Robdoll. Why did you want it to be just the two of us? If you don't say I wanted to talk to you. What about? Art. Mm. What about art? We're both lovers of art. I can tell. I still can't really tell how I feel about the love story. I'm still far from convinced. I think they both are just looking for something to do. I mean, you're desperate for a... <laughs> For Joan to have a way out, and she thinks she might see one, and I think uh, I think Freddie's just looking for something to do, but they do seem to have like an enjoyable chemistry. Well, I tell you how I see it. So after this has all happened, Freddie's done all this scheming. They're in the party. He's asking her to dance. Don't get me wrong. Loads of this does seem almost cliche and like a line, but frankly, it's nineteen sixty, so it wasn't cliche then because it had only just been invented, but. It's all kind of half working and then Freddie invites her to the National Gallery but Joan brings up that she's a married woman and quite clearly a bit reluctant. So Freddie sort of drops in another French phrase and plays this like hell of a story that ends on a line of let's gaze on glory as he's talking about walking through the, the gallery and it just feels like he's really pulling out the stops like he really wants this to happen and sort of on that last line they then start to embrace and have this kiss kiss you you buy all that shit that he's feeding her that he means that in a in a truly like he's a besotted way or he's just using lines that he's used before that he knows that work will certainly work on a woman like this and he'll be over her in a week I mean, from Only Fools and Horses, it's mentioned that Freddie is a, a womanizer. So that that is there. But as far as this episode is concerned, he sees her like walking across the street and just like jaw open. He sees her. her. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, of course. But it all starts with that. Any love, proper love, starts with fancying her. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. It has to start somewhere. So that's what I mean. He sees her, his jaws open, sees her in the pub, goes for her, scheming all these plans, talking about love. I mean, I don't want to skip ahead on the plot, but the way that it then just matures, 
it just feels like there is genuine feeling there. But we'll get to that point as we go. Let's let's not get out of ourselves. We get a, a quick scene with some arguments between uh, Reg and Rini and this guy Clayton uh, by is it something Griffiths? What's his name? Roger, Roger Griffiths. Roger it, Griffiths. I'm really struggling with the uh, the the ifs there as a guy as a kid that grew up with a lisp. That that bit that last name's not doing me any favors. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Rich is being an asshole, talking like basically giving Rini a smack, and and Clayton says, you know, you try it, mate, and see what happens. And Reg walks away because he's a pussy. And then we go back to Freddie and Jane again, who's telling another pretty reasonably long joke. And to be fair, it's it's a really funny joke, but there has been this sort of huge limitation on the funnies. I am really enjoying the story and this sort of journey, but it's not at all a comedy. It's just a period piece, and the joke delivery and architecture is so different than, say, an Only Fool's episode. I was executor of his will. Had to arrange the funeral and everything. He had three great loves, right? Football, racing and bowls, and that was it with Norman. So, I scattered some of his remains on the centre circle at Charlton. Some on the finishing line at Ascot. The rest on his favourite bowling green. Mm. That was nice. Yeah, police didn't think so. They arrested me. Why? Were you supposed to get permission? No. They said I should have had him cremated. Yeah, they're lying there enjoying a, a post-coital cigarette, uh, as as they did, and uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah they're having they're having some nice nice pillow talk, but we then cut to the first ever the inaugural Jolly Boys outing. They are off to Margate, and by they I mean literally everyone we've met are relevant of the fact people don't like them or not. For example, someone invited Slater. Don't know why. It sounds a bit like this was set up by the pub and people have bought tickets. Which yeah, therefore so. would explain... Because we talked about this in um, Sleepless in Peckham. It's like, why the hell has Reg invited Dell and all his mates? And I guess this is why. This was one of the very few things to do. I'm guessing it was relatively cheap. So it was an intergenerational day out. Yeah, like it's not and like the they gov- arranged it between themselves. Yeah, and the governor's on board as well, so he might well be yeah. uh, sort of orchestrating it. Yeah, I mean he's using it to sell beer. Clearly, he's he's walking down the aisles like handing <clears> out <throat> beers and stuff. So, yeah, that's uh, it, yeah. it's a, it's a fun little scene. You've got um, Freddie and uh, and his right hand man who we still oh. haven't name dropped, uh, Gerald Jelly Kelly, played by Paul Putner, who's a really recognisable face. He's a proper that guy. He's been in loads of stuff. Real classic comedy actor. But they're uh, they're sitting at the front of the bus looking hilariously out of place. 
we then skip between scenes of the coach and Joan and the doctors. Joan has missed three lots of periods, and uh, it seems pretty likely that she may well indeed be up the duff. We then see the halfway house, and this is a little bit silly, um, but Slater is dancing like an absolute nutter. And the reason is that he's had one of Albie Littlewood's pills on the bus. Now, we've seen these pills before. They were at a cinema scene with him and uh, another girl, played by Emily Atak. And they're blue and triangular. And call me crazy, but I just assumed they were Viagra. And I, I, I I hadn't really thought about it. And it's kind of silly because I know I have a just some knowledge in my head that Viagra hadn't been invented until fairly modern history, but I just didn't think about it at the time. So when Slater's dancing away and I was like, well, clearly it's ecstasy. I was like, oh, my my natural brain just assumed it was Viagra. Do you know when Viagra was invented? Um, It really was not that long ago. Like, Early 1996. Yeah, 96. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I kind of did myself a disservice there because I didn't... It seemed a little bit wild for that Albie Littlewood, who seemed like a pretty normal guy, to be having ecstasy, let alone Slater to be boshing one and then dancing like a nutter at the halfway house. I mean, it's quite a far story away from the Jolly Boys outing. I mean... The first, the first one, Slater's boshties and been getting on it at midday, dancing in amongst the fruities. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how much of a problem that drugs were in in sort of early sixty. I mean, this is still nineteen sixty. I don't really think drugs had really made their impact yet in London, but they talk about it a lot as if it's a a known problem. Like they all know what it is. They're like, oh, that's drugs. Drugs are bad. Blah blah blah. But uh, I I didn't really think it seems a bit early for me. But maybe may, so I'm not sure if this is the timeline being a bit squished up again, or whether this is just my complete ignorance. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he the whole tricking someone into having some drugs and then them acting stupidly is a thing I'm so sick of seeing on TV. I, it's not even funny. I've just stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> it's been done so many times and it's never done well. No, but then again, because it's set in 1960, it's kind of like, again, it was the the birth of it. So you, you kind of get more artistic license there. <clears throat> Speaking of poor jokes, we join Joan back at the doctor's and it's kind of just, this, this is kind of the worst bit of the episode for me. Yeah, quite like Joan decided that she didn't want to go under the same name of Trotter. So she chose Ming of all names, which by itself is mental and claims it to be Chinese. But the announcer who comes in like some sort of militant sergeant then calls out the name as Minge, which maybe once might have been funny, but he says Minge five or six times. And then even goes, I'm looking for Minge. And... Not only yeah, is it the, just... the, the I'm looking for Minge was a bit too like Mo and Bart prank call, wasn't it? 
the whole thing was terrible. It just wasn't that funny a joke. And then to milk it five times, not only do they go through that and then say, I'm looking for Minge, there's a follow-up to this already completely squeezed-dried joke of looking for cock, and it's some woman's like, oh, no, I'm cook. And it's like, come on. It was bad enough with Minge, let alone following up with cock after seven Minges. <laughs> it, was, it was so horrible. For a fairly serious sort of style drama that had some jokes that like took me entirely out of the episode and i was like yeah fucking have a day off that was terrible yeah i i completely agree the the minge this is another character that i think was played badly in the in the vein of some of the others we've mentioned it's a shame because they started off really well the whole idea that you know Rini says to her why didn't you choose smith and then he comes out and calls smith and like every girl looks up because that's the name that every single girl's used I thought that was quite funny, and it was actually done quite well initially. Um, but then, yeah, and then they really ruined it by with the minge. <laughs> they ruined it with the minge. <clears throat> so while they're at the doctor's, Rini ends up giving the full SP on Freddy, saying that he is uh, indeed a burglar of safes, a stealer of paintings, and also has a wife to boot. And Joni sort of puts it all together and becomes quite concerned the next scene is Joan telling Reg that she is pregnant it feels like there would be no way that this could possibly happen but I kind of guessed that she would say it happened in the same way that she does and that's that Reg came home drunk one night and did the deed unbeknownst and unremembered by him because he was so drunk and they celebrate with granddad's and some uh, some sort of champagne-esque drinks when Dell comes home and gets pretty upset to find out that she slept with her father, his father. Yeah, so Dell is uh, less than amused about his uh, parents copulating, uh, which is understandable, his dad's a wrong one. And... Um... <laughs> but then Reg and, uh, Reg and Grandad, they, they bugger off down the pub, and that leaves Joan alone in the house which uh, Freddy has worked out and so therefore comes by, uh, lets himself in sneakily again. again. So yeah, it's and then we have this quite sort of dramatic scene really between the two of them where Freddy is, has heard she's pregnant and insists to know whether it's his, um, but she's not saying anything. She refuses. He tries to make it as easy as, as he can and say, you know, if it's mine, just nod even if he can't say the words, but she won't do it. I would have loved to have seen what he, if he'd gone the other way, if he played the negative and said, if it's not mine, tell me it's not mine, say the words, because I'm not sure she could have done that. So I found that quite interesting that they chose to do it this way around. Yeah, um, it was another really perfect sort of deer in the headlights moment as Joni is absolutely speechless and completely motionless the tension in the moment is so so good when he's asking her to to nod her head he's like really pleading and begging and she just does nothing again she just sits there that thousand yard stare stare before she sort of walked past him and sits down and Freddie kind of offers her the world and kind of says she can have everything but then walks out and exits 
and sort of Jones reduced the tears and it's a really sort of powerful moment and I don't know I just believe everything that Joan has done the way that it's been written and then portrayed by Kelly Bright it's it's just so well done just the you'd be so stunned and not sure what to do that you would just freeze and it just feels not not just true to character because we don't really know a character but just true to life and yeah it's a really affecting moment yeah i think it it's the most emotional scene in the episode of an episode with a few of emotional scenes and uh you know kelly bright's given a lot to do and absolutely just stands up and knocks out of the park i think she's awesome she really sells that moment the only bit that doesn't work a tiny bit for me is just that kind of joke as as red is leaving she kind of like cries a punchline um which just shouldn't have been there about you know saying she's not just a tea girl she's a part-time filing clerk who sometimes makes the tea I, I mean, I like that they tried to end the scene on a joke in theory, but it just didn't work. And actually, it pulled her out of this exceptionally Was it supposed high... to be a joke? Well, I, I mean, what else is it meant to be? I don't know. I, I'd have it's to like a recurring it. joke to a... It's like, for me, it reminds me of like The Office. It's like, I'm assistant to the regional manager. Like, uh, it's... It almost felt like she was so upset about her circumstance that she was lamenting the fact she was just a tea girl and finding that more fuel to be upset but it may have been that I just wasn't yeah, paying I, as much I would attention. have liked maybe she could have tried to play it like that but it, it felt like she was trying to, to play a punchline in a way that it just didn't quite work and I think a, a, what should have happened there is the director saw it didn't really work and cut the line I maybe that's very hard to do to a John Sullivan script because it is like you know, <laughs> gospel. So, but I I feel like that because you you couldn't have cut it. They can't cut it in post, so you would have had to have made the the call on the day. And again, this stuff was rushed, so maybe there wasn't a chance to make it happen. But that that just that that slightly damaged that scene for me. But it it was fantastic throughout. We then get this kind of basically a summary as we kind of whiz through the timeline of her pregnancy so i guess we can just do the same essentially she gets more pregnant and gives birth um but not in the same place they have moved to um what is currently called sir walter raleigh house in the new world estate so i guess it gets renamed as nelson mandela house later um but yeah, they've managed to, to get a spot there with her being in the family way. And she has a successful birth and has named the kid, to everyone's shock and surprise, Rodney. If it's a boy, it's... Rodney? 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 And then we see the inside of the flat, completely empty, undecorated, looking pretty true to size, not time on our hands Tudorian banquet table huge but just pokey and small they've even sort of used a slightly wide angle lens to make it look bigger than it actually is which is kind of weird if they use the same focal length as what they would have done in Only Fools this flat would look honestly half the size they've 
use some interesting trickery on that. So I'm curious to see how this plays out later on. I imagine it might even be a different set. But this was pretty awesome. It was it was like slipping into some sort of comfy slip, slippers. It felt like we were kind of home once we had gone into this new flat. Yeah, it's funny that. It was so rushed. I didn't really feel anything like that. I thought I would, but it was quite rushed and we got very what seemed like deliberately different angles and layouts and stuff and and it looked so different that it it felt like somewhere completely new i wonder if they'll play on that more in the next episodes that it for me it kind of felt like it could have been anywhere it didn't feel like nelson mandela house exactly um the way they kind of shot it it seemed to be deliberately um tricking you I say the spacing is all off. I mean, this is this is a much smaller room. <laughs> this mm. is this is like you said, half the size. Yeah, I think I think it was a really good conscious choice. But I throughout the whole episode, all I wanted to see was the the flat, and I was kind of like, oh, I wish it was filmed in the flat from the start. But actually, because this isn't only fools to set this drama in. Nelson Mandela House would have felt horrible because it's this two entirely different genres going back to somewhere that we know it just would have confused you more so in the end it kind of felt like a really good transition that this very different feeling episode was in somewhere we didn't recognize but then when it kind of germinated into the Nelson Mandela flat I was I kind of had the release of ah oh, and now we've got it but I kind of appreciated the fact that we hadn't been there the whole time because it it would have been quite peculiar yeah no I, I completely agree with that I think it was very important that a lot of this was set in new feeling places like the nag said looks very different and and that was necessary and a good move so yeah we get a bit of uh, trivia here that that's never mentioned in the show the reason for the name Rodney, which is a, an incredibly unusual name. I mean, even now I've met many Rodneys in my time and, and that they they do play up to this, that like everyone's surprised by the name Rodney. And the reasoning is uh, it's after the actor Rod Taylor, who was apparently a, a favourite actor of Joan. Did you read the little sort of interesting possible gimme from John Sullivan there? I didn't. Oh, right. I, I assumed that you were leading on to that. So um, Rod Taylor was a actor who was famously, the, I believe, the star role in a film or show, I think, a film called uh, Time Machine. Yeah, and the Time Machine, it's, yeah. It, it's thought that it was a bit of a joke on the fact that Nicholas Lyndhurst was playing himself and his own father. Ah, I see. Clever. A little, little bit of a clever Sullivan, Sullivan eyes there, potentially. I mean, I, w- I wonder what originally actually made him choose the name Rodney, because there must have been something back in the day before any of this stuff had been thought about as to why he was called Rodney. That should be discussed on our Only Fools and Horses podcast. Ah, oh, we missed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get a very nice final scene. So Joan walks out onto the balcony of Nelson Mandela House, uh, Rodney, baby, in arms, 
And from across to the other building, she sees Freddy the Frog, who's uh, snuck out of the party where the rest of the family are, to uh, raise a glass to Joan and to Rodney. And then she kind of slowly pulls back a bit of the blanket to kind of reveal Rodney's face and nods rather dramatically, uh, to which Freddy gives, has sort of a moment of shock and then this huge grin and they share this kind of lovely sort of smile and and genuinely emotional moment. You see almost tears in, in Freddy's eyes and he raises his glass once again. We've got some half-priced crack ties, some miles and miles of carpet tiles, TVs... Well, I'm just going to get straight into it. I found this really interesting. I thought it was genuinely a cracking bit of telly. The aesthetics were great. I genuinely really loved the plot. There are some moments which truly captivated me, mostly involving Joan Kelly Bright. She was just tremendous from start to finish and completely stole the show. Um, She's been cast really well and and just smashed it. Dell features really lightly in this episode. We, We don't get much of him and his dealings. The whole show is or episode is centered around this love triangle or not even a triangle which doesn't really come into it of Joan and Freddie and that part of the story I I really digged I like how it's been told I kind of like the circumstances and I believed all of the performances of these new characters which we'd never seen before as far as only fools is concerned it kind of felt hard to join them to get to join them together there are some hat tips there mostly early on and quite a few of them but it just felt like an entirely different entity that no live audience means that it's just not remotely set up as a sitcom there isn't jokes smattered through the episode there is moments of comedy but they're real life sort of slower anecdote jokes but I I really like the pacing and I thought like we got quite a lot of story for that 90 minutes the problem I kind of see is that I can understand how fans of Only Fools going in might be expecting something completely different and for that might not like it but it's just not in the same oeuvre at all It, it it's just a a drama based on the story of Only Fools, like based on the idea of Only Fools. And I was really surprised that I liked it in a way that I would never like Only Fools. We, we talked about the fact that we always liked the the transition into drama and getting more depth of the characters, but a, a, just a dramatical version of Only Fools if I had read that beforehand, I don't think I would have gone into it expecting to to like it. But I did. Really independently, I enjoyed it quite a lot. And it's so hard to explain how different it is and the how you can compare them. It's like 
it's like when you see a movie and it says like based on a true story and it's like the ideas are there but it's completely different and it kind of felt like this this was like based on only fools and horses but it existed outside of it but i liked it independently and yeah surprisingly surprisingly good in a way i wouldn't have expected yeah that's interesting i'm I'm so my overall thought is I did enjoy it. I'm surprised you speak so warmingly about it. I do think it had quite a few issues. I think, I mean, Kelly Bright, Nick Lynhurst are amazing, a hundred times better than anyone else in the show and absolutely steal it. I mean, not to kind of, you know, talk down soaps or anything like that, but she, she Kelly Bright's not done that many things since except a long run which she's still doing on EastEnders I mean I feel like she should have been doing some much bigger things like she's awesome Hmm. Um, but then again I mean Nick Linhurst has not done much TV at all he basically sticks to theatre now so you know each to their own I guess but uh, for me the couple of problems are or the biggest problem is the amount of subpar performances that all of Dell's mates are complete nobodies. They've been in nothing before and nothing since. All of them, the whole gang. And there's a few other ones as well, kind of throughout that get small roles that are basically nobodies or don't do a very good job. And there's too many of them. There's too many bad performances which really take me out constantly. I think, I think Reg is great. I think Nick and um, I think Fred, you know, Freddie and Joan are great. The Dell, you know, James Buckley plays Dell pretty well, but like you say, we don't see much of him. Um, he never takes me out of it by any, you know, by any stretch. But I don't think he really draws me in either. It's just kind of there. I love that they focus around Joan. I think it's the interesting story to tell. I think it's very well written as a piece of story and as a really interesting piece of telly, especially as an Only Fools and Horses fan. It has almost a bit of a fan fiction vibe, though, in the way that it's kind of set in this different world, talking about things that have kind of been referred to but never mentioned. It reminds me a bit of fanfic more than it does a proper prequel. So that's a bit odd. But, I mean, I, I as a rule, hate prequels. There are prequels for everything, and for me, I've never liked one. Prequels are always bad. Um... This is probably one of the best prequels I've ever seen, which is, uh, you know, damning it with faint praise. But it is it is well done because it attacks things in such an interesting way, and it doesn't try too hard with the uh, with the Dell characters and stuff. It doesn't use them overuse them too much. Doesn't overuse their cliches. I mean, Trigger is awful. It's just. An insult. Yeah, is bad. Yeah. It's an absolute insult. I mean, the Boise character is all right because he's essentially doing very little Boise. He's just a guy who happens to have the name. But I like that. I think that's good. Um, the idea that we're the same people at 16 that we are at 40, I think, is ridiculous. Um, so I think that's good. But then Trigger is they are trying to do that, but it doesn't work and the actor's shit. So I'm really up and down. I there I, I really want to see loads more of of the uh the, the Joan and Freddie story and 
if they can keep as much of that on screen as as they can then we're looking at a really nice story here um but they just need to keep everyone else away because <laughs> they just drag it down they they really do um but i'm really looking forward to seeing how it develops i actually kind of appreciated the choice of the mix of people that we know and that we don't if it was all actors that we knew and that were great not only would they look a shitload less like a comparison to the sort of older people that we know like you could have stuck any one of those actors in front of us and you would have known who were they going to depict before they even even opened their mouths like they looked enough close enough to who they looked like to for that to be okay if we had had like actors we'd know playing all these side characters it would have felt like a cameo or a cliche or just like almost doing it for the money whereas they they were quite specific about the known the the well-known actors that we that they were able to use i i don't mind them i'm glad they didn't use faces we recognize i mean that that actually you know did them a disservice with uh you know, we talked about that with with Phil Daniels. That that kind of didn't work because of that. Uh, so it's not necessarily about recognizing faces. It's just if you've cast Dell's entire gang, all of which have a decent number of lines, and I can look at all of their IMDb's, and none of them have more than one or two small characters before and the same after. That means you took a punt on half a dozen characters that you you know actors that have done nothing to prove that they're they're good and went on to achieve very little in telly they might be great theater actors i mean or have massive other skills but they're not very good at this in my opinion yeah i definitely think you're probably being a little bit harsh on some of the essential extras there they were pretty small footnotes and a a fairly large production but i do get what you mean there was there was a clear uh gap between the amazing acting ability and efforts and portrayal from the key characters to those extras that clearly weren't up to the same caliber so that's understandable the most important thing is i'm definitely uh intrigued and looking forward to the to the other episodes i like i'm drawn in enough like i i had relatively low expectations just because I knew it had very mixed reviews and I enjoyed it more than I thought I would and I think there's real potential there and so I'm really intrigued to see more. Yeah, I think for me, I generally went in, even though it was going to be an hour, hour and a half, I went in expecting it to be laugh a minute, only full style. I'm not even sure I realised there wasn't a studio audience. I was expecting like bumper sitcom stuff and... That's crazy. I had no idea you knew so little about it. Yeah, because you said you hadn't done any research. I was like, okay, well, I'll go in blind. And I couldn't remember watching it 10 plus years ago. So I I had no idea what to expect. I just thought it was... I expected it to look a lot cheaper. The aesthetics not to be as good. The 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 method of filming to be more like a, a cheaper sitcom style. Not this... BBC drama kind of uh, soft vignette that we get. So, 
yeah, considering it was nothing that I thought it would be, and so far away from Only Fools, I really enjoyed it independently, and am looking forward to the uh, to the next episodes. I've got loads more trivia that I've read up on this show that we just haven't had time to go into. So I'm also looking forward to talking about some of the the story of Only Fools and John Sullivan and Rockin' Chips as it continues. So um, if you've listened to this and enjoyed the episode, definitely join for the next two because there is a lot more in the sort of Only Fools story um, than this. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to get into that and curious to see where the uh, the story goes absolutely there's definitely a lot more here it's going to be a fun journey alright guys uh, another couple of weeks until the next episode um, but we will I wasn't actually sure if we were going to do this this feature going in I wasn't sure if I was going to do some music playing out I thought we might change it up but with a, a plethora of outstanding music I, I could not have chosen one of them to play us out I was initially going to go for one of the blues tunes just because I properly love old school blues um, there was a, a song in there called How Long performed by Lead Belly it's the one they're talking about when they're oh, okay. in with all the guys and I properly love that tune but in the end I uh, went for one a bit more upbeat because I wanted to end it on a bit of a high note and it's a well famed tune it's Sam Cooke uh, Wonderful World yeah, it's been uh, recently featured in a few things, right? Has it? Yeah, I swear there's a, a song that's been out in the last five years that's got that as a feature. Oh, or maybe it just sample. appears in so many... Yeah, it's like a sample. But maybe it just appears in so much uh, film oh, and it's TV. It's been massive for like 70 years. Yeah, it's just still going. <laughs> it's just got legs. Nothing can get that down. Yeah. No, fair play. <laughs> nice. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much for, for waiting the extra week for this episode. It's been nice for us to have a week off. Um, given the length of this one and probably the subsequent ones, I believe we are going to keep our uh, our week gaps in between them. Uh, so rather than kind of splitting up long episodes into two and releasing them over two weeks, we're just going to release one long episode every every couple of weeks uh, just as we um, we finish up this show here. So uh, thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Pleasure as always, Jamie. Pleasure as always, Bob. Get in touch, let us know what you think and uh, if you enjoyed the show, not our show, Rock and Chips, and uh, what your thoughts are on it. Until then, we'll see you in a couple of weeks for episode two, five, five Gold Rings, I think, episode two. See you in a couple of weeks for Five Gold Rings. Cheers, Bob. Cheers, bye. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, forward slash Only Fools Brothers, or on Twitter, we're at Only Fools Bros. Or if you want to send us a longer message, you can email us at onlyfoolsbrothers at gmail.com. Also, really appreciate it if you could give us some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>